This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. It's truly a pleasure of mine to introduce my guest today, Elizabeth Hutchinson. Friend, mentor, colleague at Swedish First Tale, mom of two boys, what up Liam and Micah, champion for family medicine in Malawi, runner extraordinaire, simply put, a constant source of inspiration to so many before and even more in the future. And as always, names and certain details are changed to protect the identity of our patients. This is a story that has been on my mind and my heart for a long time, um, for the last nine years, actually. It's a story about human autonomy and decision-making in the midst of medical complexity. So I'm going to talk about a patient of mine. I'm going to call her Amy. Uh, I met her nine years ago, my very first year out of residency. It was when I had just started working in a community health clinic and Amy, um, at that time, was an elderly woman who always came with her daughter, who I'll call Lucy. Um, The first time I met Amy and Lucy uh, was not long into this this first year in practice, and uh, she came with a a list of diagnoses that was very long, intimidating for any new physician to look at a list that included like history of ovarian cancer and heart disease and she had had a stroke and she had rheumatoid arthritis. She had uncontrolled blood pressure, um, high cholesterol, borderline diabetes. Just hard to know where, where to start with somebody that you don't, that you don't know. Um, as, I, as I got to know them, I realized that it wasn't so much Amy who was my patient, but her daughter, Lucy, uh, who is an incredibly powerful strong-willed, intelligent Russian woman. Um, Both of them had immigrated from Russia, uh, I think about 10 years prior to me meeting them. Um, Her her mother, Amy, didn't speak any English, and so Lucy did all of the translating for her. And it was clear from the beginning that Lucy had nothing but the best intentions for her mother, um, but was going to assist her mother in medical care in ways that most daughters wouldn't do. She, she would advocate in, in an aggressive way almost. And um, it took me a while to, to get used to this. So over the years, um, I, I began to understand Lucy and Amy more and more. And um, Lucy intimidated me less and less. But things, things changed when she was hospitalized one, one time. So Amy was hospitalized for a mild stroke. And in the hospital, Lucy had um, made recommendations to the nurses and doctors in a, in a way that was pretty off-putting to the staff. And I got word of this and was told to come in and sort of, um, I don't know, help Lucy understand what the rules were of the hospital. And... Uh, it was uncomfortable because I, I knew this woman's personality over the, the year before, 
and it was completely within um, her normal status to be so um, so powerful with her words. And yet, I also knew the hospital setting was not a place that you can just kind of say whatever you want to the doctors and nurses and demand this and that and um, have it be okay. I'm sure you know what this is like with some with some patients. So Amy was discharged. I continued to um, see her in the outpatient setting uh, for another six months or so. Then I actually got a job at Swedish Family Medicine, where I am now working with Ben. And Amy and Lucy followed me there. So they became my patients when I came back to Swedish. Very, very loyal to me in a way that was uh, increasingly maybe odd uh, that they wouldn't see, they wouldn't see anyone else. Um, I, I was, I was the only doctor that could take care of Amy. Amy starting to, started to get increasingly demented. And first she started losing some memory, then ability to go outside on her own. And it was clear that Lucy needed to take care of her more and more, take care of um, Amy's finances, her legal matters. And all the while, I was trying to provide as much support for Lucy and Amy with her medical conditions, but Lucy also with her uh, transition to being a caretaker um, of an increasingly demented mother, um, invited her to, to go to support groups and resources, uh, none of what she took me up on, um, was really insistent that Amy was not going to get any worse. And if she did get worse, then, then there was something that needed to be done about that. Basically, she wanted to reverse this trend of, of dementia. Ben, as I'm sure you know, this is uh, a scenario that we've seen a lot in our, our elderly frail patients as they get more and more demented. And um, the caregivers really are in denial about it. It's really hard to see a loved one lose their memory and lose their function. And um, yeah, it's, it's just really sad. Right. Like we see this a lot and it's, it's tough to navigate, but on top of that, you had not only kind of this daughter's denial and caregiver denial, but you also had these cultural, you know, bounds to, to cross as well. How did, how did you handle, like, what were the cultural nuances? If you remember any that were, might've made it even more difficult. I knew that Amy and Lucy had an um, a very strong faith in religious Orthodox um, Christianity, in, in Russian Orthodox Christianity. Uh, I knew that they came from a place of strong commitment to the power of medicine. Amy's profession, she was actually a physician in Russia before she immigrated, never worked as a physician in the United States. But um, so I knew that Lucy had grown up uh, with doctors as as her mother and father, actually. But beyond that, all I could really tell was that there was this commitment to life, this commitment to not, quote, giving in to dementia, um, this very strong will to pursue medical care at all costs. And of course, in our training in the United States, the right training, I would say, we value the quality of life. We know that dementia is a life-threatening illness and it gets progressively worse until people die. We try to preserve the mental health and, and physical health of 
the patient and the family members as they're declining. But we never, we never think that we are going to try to stop dementia. Or we never, we never deny it. We never accept that, you know, maybe she will recover from dementia. That's not part of our teaching. And yet, I was hearing this again and again from Amy and Lucy, and this was their strong commitment. So as you can imagine, this conflict that you're sensing between our, well, our, our Western medical training with regard to treating patients who have progressive dementia um, in conflict with this patient's and her daughter's interest in um, kind of preserving life at all costs, this was in conflict specifically when Amy and Lucy would come into contact with other healthcare providers who would judge me. They would see what was happening, including on one hospitalization, a feeding tube that was placed because over the years, Amy lost the ability to eat food. Yeah, if you uh, <laughs> if you recall the the story that I told, I had a lot of um, kind of paranoia and guilt because the patient that um, I took care of like we wouldn't basically do nothing. It would just be relationship building and I'd have very little to write in my notes. And that was always uh, kind of almost like shameful for me because I was in residency and I was trying to impress not only my colleagues, but the faculty as well. And for, that was a hard part for me, but I imagine, especially feeding tube is something that <laughs> we have a, for those listening who aren't part of our residency, we have a geriatrics fellowship as well. So we have lots of experience kind of navigating these waters. And I mean, admittedly, we probably roll our eyes a bit when we see that an uh, older patient gets a feeding tube. So I imagine that was that was tough to swallow. Yeah, so a feeding tube, a pacemaker, um, full code status. So if, if Amy were to have a code... Um, Lucy uh, demands that she would want everything done to bring Amy back to life. So uh, Amy is alive currently. She resides in her home um, in a hospital bed in her living room. She can't get out of her bed. Lucy uh, lives most of the time with her and yet she has her own house, but she pays for caregivers and also takes a lot of time to care for her herself. Um, she's tube fed the best possible nutrition, nutritional formula that she could have available to her. She has physical therapy. She has massage therapy. Music is played. Everything is perfectly clean in the home. She has medical equipment that uh, Lucy has, has managed to, to get for her. And I now do home visits with her because it's really hard for her to come to my office, though she still goes to the cardiologist's office to get (laughs) evaluated uh, for her enlarging aortic aneurysm and is actually considering surgery. So one day, not too long ago, um, Lucy sat me down and she said, I want you to know that we love you very much and I want to tell you something that I've never told anyone else before. Um, I was adopted. I am, I am not Amy's biological daughter. And uh, when, when I was a baby, my parents died. And Amy and her husband, doctors at the time, took care of my parents when they died. And when my parents passed away... Uh, I was left with no parents. 
and no connection. And um, they adopted me. I have two older sisters who are still in Russia who don't interact very much with my mother and father is gone. But I know, and I've always known, that I would be nothing without my mother. I would be, I would be nothing. And I owe my entire life, everything that matters to me is my mother. And it was at that moment that everything came into clarity. Everything that, every idiosyncratic, powerful behavior on the hospital and advocacy and, um, and fighting for her mother, uh, it was all because of pure, pure love and gratitude. I, I often think, you know, we get 15 minutes, 30 minutes if we're lucky with a patient. And in that time, we have this enormous responsibility to determine quality of life and our interventions worthwhile. And a lot of the times, you know, we'll, we'll assess and we're like, I don't think this, this patient, this person in particular, and often we're talking to, to, to somebody's children, their, their, their quality of life is not that good, you know, based off of what I'm hearing. And I'll admit, I uh, hear <laughs> your story the entire way up until she told you that last bit. I, 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 I felt that way too. I felt that her quality of life, you know, wasn't like she has a feeding tube. She's sounds like nonverbal in a bed, but you know, in the end, the ability to, to smile, it kind of makes it all worth it to be content with what you have and enough to smile and to communicate that smile to somebody else. I think the reason that this uh, reminds me of grayscale is because it is never possible to truly know from the outside looking into a patient's care exactly what the story is. And just like you had this aha moment when I told you that um, Lucy had been adopted and this was the reason for her behavior, it really puts everything into context, right? It almost was like the curtain was pulled back. Grace Skills produced by Ben Davis. Special thank you to Elizabeth Hutchinson for joining us today. And as always, a big thank you to our patients who continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences.